All right, so two quick things before we get into the text. We're stuck. About 10 minutes ago, there was a white Chrysler minivan outside at the bottom of the ramp, locked with the engine running. So if you have a white Chrysler minivan and you don't distinctly remember pushing that button, you might want to go check, okay? Or maybe you left it on purpose to run the air conditioner so when you leave here, you'll be comfy. I don't know. But that's out there. That was out there 10 minutes ago. Second, when you came in this morning, you should have gotten this little thing, a packet of pictures of all our next year's class of fellows. We pass these out every year for a couple of reasons. One, we want you to know that they're coming. Our fellows all arrive. Blue Ridge fellows arrive the week of, uh, weekend of Labor Day. And then they'll be with us, you know, worshiping with us the following Sunday. And we're always so grateful for your kind welcome. Um, they're such an important part. In fact, there's a bunch of former fellows over here. Once a fellow, always a fellow. And we love them. And we're so grateful for your kindness to them. One of the most significant things that you guys do is welcome them into your homes. Every year, it's, it's honestly a little bit of a marvelous thing. Every year, people invite a total stranger to live with them, to live in their house, to feed them throughout the year. And we're so grateful that you do. It is the absolute bedrock of all that we do is your kind hospitality. Uh, this year... Um, presently already, all of the female fellows, all the women are already, um, they're all stolen. They're all taken. They're already, they're already homed. And so there's no girls left. Um, but there are boy fellows left. And I know I feel like I'm selling puppies, like all the girl puppies are gone, but there's still these wonderful boy puppies. And uh, they really are. And they won't, they won't pee on your floor. They're really good fellows. And so um, I would love to talk to you about that. So if you put up here on the screen, I'm not even sure who's in the booth, but if you can put my number up here, if you are interested, you're intrigued, what is that in, what's involved with this exactly? You're not committing anything, just text the word maybe to 814-280-3771 and I would love to tell you more, um, explain to you. you. You can kind of see who the fellows are. You can pick your favorite puppy and we'll talk about it and it would be my pleasure. I, I cannot tell you what a gift you are to Kelly and to myself and to the fellows themselves with your kind hospitality. So we'd love you to consider inviting one of these guys to live with you for those nine months. Okay, so you got a Bible? Open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, this morning's study takes us to what I think is the central passage in the New Testament on communion. We, have, we call these chair passages where the seat of the doctrine resides. And 1 Corinthians 11, I think... I don't know, Quig, would you agree? Do you think 1 Corinthians 11 is, top, is the most important communion text or would you augment it with others? I mean, there's obviously there are others, but... Yeah, I mean, when the actual, in the, in the synoptics where it happens, that's like ground zero. But as far as explanation of it, it's, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. Some of these words uh, that Dan read to you, no doubt, sounded very familiar because we literally say them every single week. But some of these words, or at least one of these words, I think is nearly universally misunderstood. In particular, not just in chapter 11, but in particular in verse 29. And I think that if we correctly understand one word in verse 29, then it just might light up what Paul is actually saying, saying and help us to see the underlying problem that he's addressing um, and, the, and then thereby position ourselves to do what he really is exhorting us to do. So take a look at it here. Here's verse 29. He said this, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Which word do you think might be misunderstood? If that was a roulette table and it's not, you're at church, so everybody relax. If you were to put all your chips on one word there, what word would you say might be the most likely to be tricky in that sentence? Judgment. Say it again. 
Judgment. What did you say, Lily? Body. She just won the roulette game. So good job. Okay. It is the word body. Now, I'm not sure what your intuition is, but most people seem to suppose that what Paul is saying is that if you don't recognize that in some sense this bread is his body, then you are doing something very dangerous. Then coming to this table is a grave and a risky thing to do. Now, exactly what people mean by that varies. Our Catholic friends believe in a doctrine known as transubstantiation. What that means is they think that this bread has been transubstantiated, its nature has been changed to flesh, human flesh, particularly Jesus' flesh. And while they would grant that the bread maintains all the accidental attributes of bread, it's still bready, looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread. And in fact, its essential nature has been changed to the flesh of Christ. It is literally transformed into that, okay? Protestants would say, well, I don't think any of that's true. And in fact, there's actually some significant problems with that view. But they would still say that something going on in verse 29 there, that, that the body is about Jesus' body, it's about the bread, and that while it might remain bread, if you don't understand that in some sense this bread is representative of his body, or in some sense embodies his presence in some real and meaningful way, if you don't get that that's what's going on with the bread, then you are in grave danger of eating and drinking judgment on yourself. That a crucial matter when we come to the table is to understand what this bread really is. According to the Protestants, perhaps one way that we might fail to recognize that is by treating it like it's common. You know, like we just come in here, we're just flippant, we're not sufficiently circumspect. We just come forward without a sense of humility and repentance, no confession. If we don't really recognize, hey, y'all, this is a big deal. This is not just a piece of bread. There's something going on here. And we don't come with a holy sense of fear, then we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. okay? So either way, Catholics and Protestants hold that Paul is saying something right there in that word body about the bread and really what it represents, okay? You with me so far? Here's the thing. I think that both the Catholics and the Protestants fail to understand what Paul is really saying. I don't think that that is what Paul meant. And I think that I can prove it to you if you're interested in going on a little trip with me, okay? To do so, to really understand what Paul is saying, what we need to do is peer into verse 29 and pay careful attention throughout the whole chapter to how Paul discusses the communion elements, to how he uses the term body in the immediate context, and then finally, just to what, what is he actually talking about in chapter 11? What is his purpose in writing to the Corinthians? What is the problem that he is addressing, okay? So, first the elements. Notice that throughout all of chapter 11, whenever Paul talks about the bread, he also talks about the wine. Whenever he talks about eating, he also drinks about, talks about drinking. Every time, there's always perfect parody whenever he is discussing both the nouns and the verbs of communion, okay? So go back to chapter 11, look at verse 23, just listen to what he says. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Then, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, total parity. Everything he says about bread, he's going to say about the wine. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Total parity. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29. Here's our verse. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay? Again, even in verse 29, perfect parody twice. And then there's this clause that he throws in the middle. Eat and drink, eat and drink, but something happens in the middle. And that something in the middle is what he calls discerning the body. Okay? What he doesn't say up here is anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and the blood eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I recognize that that might seem like a subtle distinction, but I think it is meaningful. Every time he talks about the communion elements, he uses both. In this instance, if he is doing that, he has broken his pattern. I think it is far more likely that he has not broken his pattern and that he is saying something else. That when he talks about discerning the body, he is not in that moment talking about the bread at all. Okay? So, what else might he mean by his use of the term body? I think to get a clue, we can look at this broader context. So first, we're in 1 Corinthians 11. We're one verse away from chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he, I want you to notice how, how and how often he uses the term body. Right? He says it over and over and over again. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 12. We'll start at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He continues on like this for some time. We'll skip ahead. In verse 27, he concludes the argument saying, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You guys, it is my contention that in chapter 11, verse 29, when he says eating and drinking and eating and drinking, right there in the middle, discerning the body, what he's not, he's not talking about recognizing what the bread represents. He is saying you need to recognize the gathered community of believers. That when you come to this table, it's crucial that we recognize that we are eating and drinking these elements mindful of the community, the body, the people of God, the body of Christ that is here. And if you don't do that, if you don't discern the body, if you're not mindful of the gathered community, something has jumped the tracks. That is what he's saying in verse 29. Because you guys, the communion meal was always meant to carry the shape of the cross. There is undoubtedly a vertical element we celebrate, it's a, it's, a, it's a celebration, it's a joyful entering into our connection with Christ. We proclaim his death and his resurrection until he comes again. There is vertical. And, according to Paul, there is a horizontal element that celebrates our connection to one another. For we are all members of one body. Paul is saying 
that if you have over-verticalized but under-horizontalized the meal, then you miss what it means. And in fact, he even goes so far as to say that if you miss the horizontal, you lose the vertical. If that feels strident and strong, just listen to what he says. Listen to his case. This is earlier, chapter 11, verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He is describing a lack of relational harmony. There's factions, there's divisions. Um, Something has gone wrong. And then listen to this haymaker. Listen to how strong this is in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now you guys, it is the Lord's Supper that they're eating, ostensibly. That's, what, that's why they've gathered. Paul says, you think it's the Lord's Supper. You mean it to be the Lord's Supper. You're pretending it's the Lord's Supper, but it's not. You, you blew the horizontal and so you've lost the vertical. The problem in Corinth, you guys, was the people were getting there early and they were eating all the food They were drinking all the wine. They were inconsiderate of. They were blind to the needs of the community. They were not discerning. They weren't seeing the gathered community of believers. They were taking all they could get for themselves. And I know that this is a little bit weird. It's a little bit inconceivable for us because like in our near universal experience, like nobody gets drunk at communion, right? I mean, we're talking like just ever so slight a portion, right? Nobody's gonna get stuffed off the bread. But what you have to understand is that when the early church celebrated communion, do you know this? It was an actual meal, like genuine. There was, they didn't get a tiny bit. They got a portion, right? It was a meal. It was a meal that symbolized something. It was not something that symbolized a meal, right? It was an actual meal, not one tiny piece of bread and a dip of wine. What we have done for centuries, centuries, of course, is not an actual meal, but a, but a, a token of a meal, right? That's not how they did it. So their experience of it was they had a different way they could completely go off the rails. They broke bread in their homes. When they were at their best, they gathered with joy, right? Jesus had, it's fascinating to me, Jesus instituted a sacrament that we would follow and we would regularly do throughout the ages and it was absolutely meant to celebrate our connection to him that we would routinely pause and consider he died for me. We would proclaim his death, his resurrection. These words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 that demonstrates the church had already said, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do this a lot. This is gonna be one of the markers of us. The early church was criticized for what they called love feasts, that we would do these things and they would speak ill of us. But it was always the thing that it was meant to be a communal meal with laughter and camaraderie and a celebration, not only of the vertical, but also of the horizontal, because we are his people. It was not supposed to merely be a symbolic, ritualized, individual ceremony, but it was a communal experience of a shared meal. And I suspect that no one from the early church would recognize modern communion. They'd think, what? Where's the table? Like, where's where's the meal, right? They were seated at a table, usually in someone's home, and there was food to eat, they remembered his death, all those things. The Anglicans, we, we have a defining document. Some of you might be familiar with it. It would take you about five minutes to read it. It's really 
Anglicans are not a wordy bunch, okay? So the 39 Articles is pretty concise. And in it, it talks about this very thing. It is spot on. It's exactly right. It's Article 28 of 39. And this is what it says. Of the Lord's Supper, the Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death. Now, what's a little bit curious here, the way that we think of this, probably experience it. He's saying they're, they're granting the horizontal. It's like, of course it's horizontal, but it's also vertical. And I'm, what I'm saying to you is like, of course it's vertical, but it's also horizontal, right? It is meant to be both. It is both. That's what Jesus meant. And my, one of my fears is that in the way that it's almost universally celebrated, I think that you could take communion for every week for years on end and never really experience the yellow part the sign of love that Christians ought to have among themselves, one to another. And in Corinth, specifically, they were blowing the yellow part. They messed it up. So if you understand what Paul is saying, what he means by the word body, if you can see the whole context of his argument in the chapter, I think there's a number of things that are maybe are worth considering for us today. We are not guilty of what the Corinthians were doing. Just, we're in a different context. We don't have the opportunity, frankly, to be guilty of what they're doing, right? But... There are implications for us, nevertheless. I have spoken to some people who find the table frightening because there is this looming warning that hangs over them that to eat this thing in an unworthy way, careful, 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 this could leave you in grave danger. And I think, generally speaking, people that assume that eating it in an unworthy manner probably has something to do with, like, I haven't confessed my sins or... You know, I did something really stupid this week and I haven't cleaned my act up and so I don't know if I'm allowed to come and partake of the table, right? I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I believe that Christ's table is a welcoming table and a generous table. It is a table of grace. Some are representing the table as if it's like the Mount Sinai of the New Testament. Touch it and die. And I don't think that's true. I think it's a table of grace it's a table of love, and it is open to all who flee to Christ for his forgiveness and his grace that we might be strengthened by his kindness as embodied in his people. If you only come to the table when you are worthy, well, guess what? You're not worthy. This is not a table for the self-righteous. It is a table of grace. And when you are mindful, most mindful of your unworthiness of this meal is precisely when you should come. Come and eat and drink of his grace. He died for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Come and partake of the meal surrounded by the community of your friends with whom you are united to Christ. Second thing, in light of what Paul is saying here, I think it'd be a really good thing. I think it'd be a beautiful and a healthy thing for us to have an increased growing sense of the gathered body when we come to the table. That when we come, we are mindful for sure of the vertical, but also the horizontal. And I know that that is hard to do given the constraints of time and space that we all operate under. But I do think that we can come together mindful of our union, not only with Christ, but with each other. That you can look around and be aware of the horizontal, that you are part of this great body. 
And I think we could supplement it. I think we could do a couple of things as a church to supplement that experience. So here's a couple of things we have in the works. Number one, um, every year on Monday, Thursday, we always celebrate. As, in the middle of Holy Week, we're celebrating all these things, preparing for his cross and his resurrection. And Thursday is the day that we celebrate, that we reenact, essentially, the foot washing that he does. It's in John 13. John doesn't have a communion celebration in his gospel. He shows Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we always honor that. And that's beautiful. But this year, we're going to do something different. That this year we will not be having the foot washing ceremony in here. We will be celebrating a Passover Seder out there. And we hope that you will come. I know it's months and months and months away. We'll tell you about it when we get there. But the meal that Jesus celebrated really was the, Pas- the Jewish Passover. Um, and if you've ever been to a Jewish, pa- especially a Messianic Jewish Passover, it's extraordinary. It is beautiful. And it, shows, it gives so much insight into what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, all that is going on there. We want to understand it more thoroughly together. We're going to share that meal together. And I really hope that next Maundy Thursday, whenever that is, like March or something, that you will come and we'll celebrate that. Okay, so we'll do that a long time out. But sooner than that, we want to figure out, we're not sure honestly how we're going to do this, but we want to figure out how we can on occasion in appropriate ways, consistent within like the Anglican way of doing things, allow life groups to celebrate communion there in the groups because that's how the church did it. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They're talking about communion. Acts says multiple times that they broke bread in their homes. It was a meal. It was a shared fellowship meal. We want to do it right. We don't want to just go willy-nilly and just kind of like just go rogue. But we want to be authentically Christian, good Anglicans. We want to get this right and help you experience not just the vertical, but also the horizontal. Okay? Third thing, just to consider, there has been a centuries-long debate. What is happening in the bread? What is happening in the wine? What is really happening there? Is Christ really present in the meal? In what sense is he present in the meal? And while I do not think that I understand it entirely, there are plenty of things that are beyond my understanding. I believe there is some mystery to this and that Christ really is present in the meal, at the meal. But I do think that the chief and the primary thing that we could and should understand is that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I am there among them. I want you to be mindful that Christ is present genuinely when his body is gathered. The issue in my mind is not primarily that he is on the table in the bread, but he is at the table in his people, genuinely present in the gathered body. He is actually sharing this meal with us because he lives in us and we see him in the lives of one another, in the relationships that we share because we are his body. I want to tell you a secret. Every week we celebrate communion and every week I stand over here. And when I'm standing over here, it's one of my favorite parts of the service because I don't have anything to do. I don't have any lines that I have to remember. There's nothing that I can mess up. I just have to stand there. But when I do, I look out at you. Every week, it is my habit to kind of look out. And when I look out, Quig is talking, Brian is running through it, and I'm just kind of like, I'm listening. I don't mean to offend you. I'm listening to every word you say. But my eyes are not listening. My eyes are looking. And I'm looking at this group of people, this room filled with people that I love and whose stories I know some part of. And you guys are all so beautiful and dressed up and put together. 
But I also know that many of you have suffered deeply, have walked courageously, have exercised faith, have grown in grace. And many of you right now are presently carrying very heavy burdens. And I know that I don't know the half of it. But I know enough that I can see past the veneer to see a bunch of broken sinners trying to get through the day, but who have found in Christ what they need to make life work, sometimes just barely. And it is that connection with you that sweetens the whole experience for me. It is the horizontal that gives life to the vertical that embodies for me all that it is to be in Christ. Paul exhorts us, discern the body, see the people. So as we gather in about, you know, six or seven minutes, and then every week for the rest of time, don't let it be merely vertical. The vertical is amazing. He died for us. He raised for us. He's coming again. We proclaim all that. But Jesus means you to experience not just that, but the horizontal as well. So if, as we come to the table, if there's a relational tear, then I would invite you, go heal it. Because it's in the unity of the body that the life really flows. If there's somebody that you're like, man, I have not talked to them for so long, make a date to have another meal. Grab a lunch, be with them, right? If there's something, I don't know, somebody that you know that is hurting, move toward them in love and kindness. Help them find a job. Help them watch their kids. Listen to them talk. Help them metabolize whatever difficulty they're carrying right now. Maybe host a fellow. That would be lovely. You could do that, right? We are going to pray, in a, you know, and we're going we're gonna to take this time. We're going to meet the Lord. And then, like I said, six or seven minutes, we're going to come to the table. As we do, we will do what we do every week. But be sure to look around. Discern the body of Christ. He is present here. He is present in your neighbor. He's present in our relationships and he takes the way that we treat others as the way that we treat him because we are his body. Dig it? I'm going to invite you, if you want to, one of the ways that we love one another is we pray for one another, we care for each other. There are heavy burdens, things that are going on in your lives. You can come down front. If you want to pray alone, just you and Jesus, game on. He's here. He's here to be with you. But if you want to come to these straight edges, we'll have someone there to meet you, to pray with you, to enter in, to listen, to be the physical embodiment of what Christ is doing in your life. We would love, it would be our honor to be your friend and to walk with you through the difficult things. Come down. Whatever's going on in your life, offer it to him. He loves you and he made you for himself. Lord Jesus, we lift you up. We exalt your name. We praise you how gracious and good and kind you are to us. Lord, how lost we would be if you had not come to have your body broken and your blood poured out for us. How generous you are to remind us, especially here each week, that we are partakers of you. We eat this bread. We drink this wine. We take you into ourselves. But Lord, how kind you are that we don't do it all by ourselves in some little silo, but we do it in a community. Would you help us to be mindful that we are your body and to live like it? What an honor that you would associate with us, never mind with such ridiculous intimacy. We love you and we thank you for loving us. Amen.